Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 198 of the Rebel Author Podcast. We are just two episodes from the big 200, and I can't quite believe it. Today, I'm talking to not one, but two special guests, Julia V and Ken Bebel. I absolutely adored this conversation where we discussed their journey from indie authors to six-figure trad authors, and it was fascinating. In fact, they are fascinating. They were an absolute delight to talk to. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. But first to last week's question, which was, what are you doing that's exciting this summer? Katie Scribbles said, already loving this episode, only a few minutes in. I'm excited and also haunted by my summer plans to shop for a house. Oh, that is exciting. It's not exactly a buyer's market in the US. So here's hoping, fingers crossed. This week's question is, uh, how do you rest? (laughs) And no idea why I'm asking that. Okay, the book recommendation of the week this week is Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Bayron. I am listening to the audio of this and it's very feminist. It's, uh, I think it's like young adult fantasy. It is set around a twisted version of the Cinderella uh, fairy tale and it is fantastic. It looks at the oppression of women. It um, looks at, you know, like what it takes to rebel, um, conformity, things like this. And like, it looks at all of those things in a way that like is not... um, like through the expression of the fantasy world, it was fascinating for it to be so richly thematic um, and still so enjoyable. So yeah, really, really loving listening to that. So in personal news and updates then, (laughs) well, I think we all knew this was coming. So I believe that last week I had mentioned that I am tired. Um, I ground to a halt, like, full-on physical halt. I have taken a month off boot camp. I won't be going back to boot camp until after the holiday. The reason for that, and not everybody needs to know my ailments, but um, basically I trapped a nerve in my back on Friday. Uh, That kind of loosened up by Monday and I was like, oh, I'm going to go back to boot camp. Pulled my trousers up, trapped a nerve between my shoulder blades. (laughs) (laughs) At which point I was like, okay, having only just been to the chiropractor, maybe, maybe I might be really physically tired as well as mentally tired. Uh, So I went to the chiropractor and the chiropractor also bollocked me and was like, this is all the stress and tension in your neck. You're just going to make this happen again unless you slow the fuck down. So I was like, all right, everyone, I fucking hear you. (laughs) So I haven't done a huge amount this last week i i have worked of course i've worked like who are we fucking kidding um i have worked but i have done considerably less work than i would normally like basically i'm just doing the essentials and i have managed to re-outline my book now I was 42,000 words into book two, which was arguably over halfway, and I more or less have to trash it and start again, which is exactly what happened in um, January. So I fully confess that I may have gone a little bit too fast this time, um, and perhaps Activator may or may not have sort of flicked the ignition key 
too quickly on starting to draft. So um, I have a coaching session today. So look at me being all honest and confessing. Um, and I'm just going to ask my coach, like, how do I not fuck this up again? <laughs> because I didn't used to write um, uh, 30,000 words and then stop, bin it and start again. Um, and before you say it's because I'm writing too fast, I don't think that's the issue. I think it's that I'm starting too fast. So like, I just think I need a little bit more time to outline um, and bake it in. And also one of the, like, I got the trope wrong as well, which has not helped. I thought I was writing Rivals to Lovers and I'm not, I'm writing Forbidden Romance. And that did not help. And I, if I had just like talked to somebody about what I was doing, like talked the plot out, I think I would have realized. Um, so I just need to put some more things in my process. Like one of the things I'm thinking about is maybe doing a week of input, like where I take a whole week off. I know, I know, fuck me. I, can't, I actually can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but like take a whole week off the week before I start writing um, and do like hardcore input of movies with that are relevant to the trope, hardcore like input of, um, like books and stuff and then like I check the outline once more before I start drafting I don't really know I don't know if I can sit on my ass for a week I don't I don't know that I can but I can I can certainly try to do some of these things because I don't this is not efficient and I don't like inefficiencies um so and you know like I wrote two books fast last year that didn't this didn't happen with so I can't like I I know that it's something I've done wrong this year um, or like a step I'm missing in the process. I'm not entirely sure, but I've got one more opportunity to fix it for the book that I write in the fall, um, which will be the first book in a new series. So I wanna make sure that I, I get my process right. Um, so yes, I'm having a coaching session today and the question of sustain sustainability might come up too. I do like, <laughs> I feel like I'm defending myself to like, the, the the fucking black void out there because there's you know nobody's here telling me that you're doing things wrong but clearly there's like a little fucking angel on my shoulder going yeah but you didn't rest did you and you're going so fast and rah 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 um but basically what I think has happened is the reason that I am so tired isn't that I'm writing quickly because I'm not really I've only done two books this year um it's not like I'm doing a book a month we're in month seven I've done two um, you know, it, it's more that, um, I think that it's writing quickly and doing everything else and being a mum and dealing with all the school and doing all the cooking and, you know, having been, spent a long time doing freelance as well. And, you know, apparently you can't actually work until 10.30 at night every night for four years and not feel any effects. I mean, I did just think that I was a young sprightly thing. <laughs> It all would be fine. I mean, there were no effects, right? There was no impact of that. And it, it's it's deeply annoying when, like, in my brain, I'm capable of doing that. Like, there is a real dissonance between what my fucking puny mortal skin sack is capable of and what my brain <laughs> wants to do. <laughs> and I'm laughing because, like, I just... It's so fucking frustrating. Anyway... So, um, yeah, maybe one or two of you were right and I might have been wrong. Whatever. <laughs> what the fuck ever. I don't, whatever. It's like, whatever. Um, so here is me saying that today I am going to have a coaching session and we're going to set some more realistic 
timeframes for things. Um, not including writing words, because I still want to write the words as fast as I'm writing. Even if that means I have to slow everything else down, I'm not sacrificing the output of words because I write better books when I write at this pace. So uh, that's not going to change, but I am willing to slow other things down uh, in order in order to make that compromise. So like, yeah, hear me when I say that. Anyway, so I now have a bit of a, a choice because there's only, because I'm uh, in London on Monday and uh, there's like, uh, uh, you know, two, We I have like my podcasting day and stuff. Um, I've only got like four working days and I, so I'm trying to decide what to do before I go away because really I'm going to have to more or less start again. Um, with this book and I don't really want to start and then have to stop for holiday and then have to come back and reread everything and you know uh, but also I don't want to get too behind so I'm not really sure and uh, this isn't really a conversation to, to have on the podcast but I'm sort of in this deliberative mood over what the best strategic decision is because ugh, whole raft of reasons anyway boring life story you don't need it so I don't know what I'm going to do this week I don't know how to update you because I'm going to make that decision later today all right the rebel of the week this week is Emma Jane. Emma says, hearing the sad news about Eden's nan got me thinking about my own nana who we lost last year and whether or not she was a rebel at all. I thought not. She had an interesting life and did and saw some incredible things, but she was always very sensible, except for when she was a little girl. She always loved weddings, so whenever there was one in the local church, <laughs> she'd sneak into it to watch strangers get married. This she got away with for a while, until she, st <laughs> until she started sneaking into the wedding photos too. Once the vicar cottoned onto this, <laughs> oh no, she was banned from attending any more weddings uninvited. It makes me smile to think that my nana is in random people's wedding photos. In the she's the original wedding crasher, sending Eden and their family love in this difficult time. Oh my goodness me! I absolutely love this story. Um, I would love to know. Like, does did does did your nan um just love weddings all her life? Uh, did she did she yeah like. <laughs> I just love this. I love this so much. Did she work in and around weddings? I wonder if it became a lifelong passion for her. Thank you so much for that rebel story. You know I love the rebel man stories. They are magnificent. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. We really are always in need. Um, and it, But it can be any kind of rebellion. It doesn't even have to be your rebellion. It could be a family rebellion, a sister, a brother, a sibling, a mother, a, an uncle, an aunt. It could be anyone's rebellion. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons this week, but an enormous thank you to all of the existing patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like the question and answer, writing group sessions called Poison and Prose, the Slack chat community group where there are more questions and answers answered and a whole ton of support, the Rebel quarterly challenges, the movie nights, the everything else that we do, including the masterclasses then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black okay that's enough from me let's get on with the episode hello and welcome to the rebel author podcast i'm super excited because we have not one but two guests today i am joined by julia v and ken bebel 
Julia is the author of the urban fantasy series, Seattle Slayers. Julia attended UC Berkeley and majored in Asian studies. By day, she is a trial lawyer in Silicon Valley. She often writes with co-author Ken Bebel. Their novel, Ebony Gate, is an Asian-inspired urban fantasy and will be published by Tor, one of my favorites, in July 2023. Ken. In real life, I make new arms and legs for people. In fiction, I cut them off first, then make new arms and legs for people. <laughs> I have to ask all about this. Um, so tell me uh, a little bit about what arms and legs you're making, first of all. Um, well, uh, I got into prosthetics um, because I was just obsessed with Star Wars when I was a kid. Um, watching Luke get his arm at the end of Empire was really a, a pivotal moment in my life. And I went into college knowing that I wanted to do something with with prosthetics and uh, went into it right out of school. And I did it for about 20, 25 years. Um, and yeah, so I, I fit just about everything, uh, everything from fingers and toes to full arms and full legs. Uh, and it just, it really translated when we started writing um, because our first the first writing that uh, Julia and I did was military sci-fi, and uh, there's plenty of opportunities to chop off people's arms and legs, and then give them all sorts of high-tech prosthetics. Amazing. So, so, and these are medical as opposed to like like in theaters and movies, and this you're not on the like prop propped side; you're on medical side. Correct. Yeah. So I'm I'm I was doing things where people needed to learn how to walk again, or needed to use a use a new arm again. Oh, this is amazing. Did you ever do um, any with like wiring and like, because I know they're like, it's quite advanced now. They're doing somewhere yeah. like, like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, tell, yeah. tell me, like, how does it, I'm just, well, I don't know. I'm just nerding out now. Tell me more. <laughs> Speak more. Use more words. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, probably the, the most interesting and the newest pieces of technology that are out right now. Um, will sense the the nerve uh, the nerve impulses in your arm, and then translate those nerve impulses into signals that can then control your prosthesis. So it's it's really really close to just being able to think about something and then having your prosthesis actually react. Uh, Amazing. And the the thing that's going to be probably coming along in like twenty years is something where they actually put a uh, implant a transmitter in your brain. Uh, actually just read the sensors, read the the signals right out of your brain and then transmit them directly into your prosthesis. Is there, is there any connection with like spinal injuries and being able to like that particular uh, work with, in, with kind of the sensory, sorry, and this is really off track, but I'm very curious about this. <laughs> is there any anything like any crossover work looking at spinal injuries and people being uh, able to walk again? It's funny you say that because literally two days ago, my friend and I were trading a, an article back and forth, and um, I haven't gone and researched into the the study yet. But they did that exact thing. They they put a Bluetooth transmitter inside a man's brain, and then they put a receiver lower on his spine. And he was a spinal cord injury patient who couldn't walk, mm -hmm. in partial paralysis. And with this device, they were able to take the, the impulses from his brain, skip over the break in his spine, and then transmit it into his legs. And Whoa. they had a video of him walking with a cane. Whoa. Yeah. Send this to me. My stepfather is paralyzed from the neck down. Would you would oh. you send would you send it to me? Because I would be very yeah, interested yeah, yeah. to read yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, that yeah, is I'll look, incredible. I'll look for it. I'll find it. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. What an incredible start to this episode. Yeah. Okay. Also, also, he buried the lead. Like his degree had a name like cybernetics. Oh, cybernetics. Yeah. That was my my BS degree. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Sorry, Julia. Just to, just to completely launch. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> but that was very, very interesting. Okay. Tell me a little bit about you both. Um, what was your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Julia, let's start with you. Um, so Ken and I were both avid readers when we were young and we've known each other since we were 13. So we started co-writing when we were kids. Um, we also failed out of Chinese school together. So we really <laughs> spent a lot of time like trying and failing things. And, um, we took a long break, you know, we, we did real jobs, right. For putting food on the table. And then, uh, in 2016, I did NaNoWriMo. And I had a really good time doing it. And I said to Ken, you know, we should write something. And so I, I started a story. I sent it to him. I said, you know, write the next scene. And that was in 2017. And we've been at it ever since. We probably have like a million words plus together under our belt. That's literally bananas to me. What on earth made you want to some email somebody else to write the story with you? Because I'm like, I would love to be able to co-write but I cannot get my head around letting go (laughs) was it then talk to me about that you know this might be like a Clifton Strengths thing because you know I I asked Ken to do it yesterday and we share four of the um, top 10 strengths and his number one strength is relater which is Uh. about working with small teams right and um, we both have analytical so I think to some degree we we look at it like problem solving and joint problem solving and that's why we're able to do it together okay so you've you've brought it up everybody drink uh i have to know (laughs) what are your top strengths tell me uh for me number one is future but i also have strategic analytical focus maximizer um significance like you know excellent excellent ken what about yours uh, yeah, I got to look it up. Uh, but it is uh, number one is, as Julia said, is relator and then deliberative responsibility, analytical and arranger, which um, after I read through it, I was a little disappointed because I think it makes it uh, says I'm perfect for middle management. Oh, so no. I, I'm, I'm glad I got out of my job. <laughs> <laughs> that Surely not. <laughs> Oh, my goodness me. I think it's always really shocking when you read it the first time because they are like almost spookily accurate, like in terms of the like the sentence Mm -hmm. level stuff that they talk about. It's quite unnerving that somebody can like point at so many of your, um, well, strengths and foibles, really. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, like... (sighs) We did it in the office, so I'm with a a bunch of trial lawyers, and I didn't have competitive, like, anywhere in the top, but a lot of my colleagues had achiever and competitive, which is not surprising at all, Um, and so I think for me, I realized, oh, I guess the substitute is significance, right, like... Yeah, I mean, the the strategic has elements of, like, competitiveness as well. There's quite a few strengths that have like elements of it and I think um yeah and also there's a difference between 
like competitiveness and competition as a strength. But yeah, it is always really interesting, especially like if you're in an environment and you like pick up like the traits or mannerisms of the group and then you're and then you're like, wait, and then but obviously like it can come back and it, I'm not a coach, everybody, everybody knows that. But you know, it is interesting to see like how it all um like works together. So Talk to me about the fact that you started co-writing at 13. Like, what? Like, and also, how have you not killed each other over this many years of, like, working <laughs> together? Like, I know you've mentioned the strengths, but, like, what has changed or evolved about your process? Like, how is it that you two work together? So um, the the very first collaboration we did was, um, I honestly, I don't even remember how it started. I My, my strongest memories of that are of Julia and I writing separately at home on our computers and we would talk on the phone. And then what we would do is when one of us was about to tap out, they would bring the, the manuscript to school on a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And then we would trade it. Now and then the other one was, we are. Yeah. And then we would, <laughs> I remember then, floppies. I remember floppies. <laughs> and then we would take it home and then, write the next section and it just kept going back and forth. And honestly, that's the thing that I remember about it is, is that part of the process. I, I remember what the story is because I still have it. My mom actually has the only printed copy. Um, and I think she's the last living person who will ever read that story. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I don't remember like how we got started. I don't remember like how we talked things out. Um I do know that we won $50 from that story in a contest. Um, so it was, you know, it was pretty successful. Uh, but you know, actually, we didn't even, we didn't collaborate on much else until Julia um, pulled me in after she did NaNoWriMo. And now our, our process is, I think it's probably very different because we collaborate on Google Docs. So there are a lot of times where we're, we're we'll be writing and we'll actually be writing in the same paragraph at the same time. We've also um, written the same sentence at the same time in yeah. separate paragraphs. It's crazy. What the fuck? Okay, and, so the, I I'm short circuiting. <laughs> I need to understand this. So you don't write you. Oh my goodness me! You write at the same time. How yeah. do you? How does that work? Well, when we started, we both had kids at home. He's an empty nester now, but like um, evenings were a natural time that we would both write. So that's why I switched from Scrivener to Google Talk Docs so that Ken and I could work in the same manuscript, right, at the same time. And um, we we do a lot of our ideation on the telephone. So we'll talk several times a week. For, and, you know, um, we have brainstorming documents where we keep like our our thought processes outside of the document. And then when we conclude our writing session for the evening, a lot of times we'll throw in some bullet points. Like, this is what I think happens next. This is what I want to cover in the next scene. And so if I got a login in the morning and, you know, read his notes, I kind of know where he's going. Um, we, we do plot, but we find that we write a different book than what we plotted out. So I wouldn't say that plotting helps us like that. So I'm really fascinated by the writing at the same time. How did you know who was going to write which bit? Uh, that, I don't know that we have a really good answer for that other than that it's just organic. Um, 
uh, I think the times where we we're literally writing at the same time, um, what will happen is one of us will be ahead of the other one. And then the, the person who's behind will follow behind and actually edit as we go, um, add things in, um, maybe flesh a few things out. Um, I, I know when I write, I tend to be very, very plotty and I like to get people from point A to point B. I want this person to punch that person on the way and Julie will come in behind me and she'll fill in all the feelings and the emotions and really flesh out the the manuscript as we go. There'll be times where I'll be writing and I'll get to a section where I know I need to describe something, but I can't visualize it for whatever reason. I'll just put brackets in. I'll say, I need to describe this place or this person. And then sometimes Julia will come in after me and then just fill that in. And if it's the other way around, you know, Julia will do the same thing. She'll she'll block certain things out and I'll just come in behind. And honestly, I, I think we're in the minority when it comes to people who collaborate like this because uh, whenever I've been in conversations with other authors, uh, it seems like most other authors who collaborate, they tend to have really rigid systems of like, okay, I'm going to plot and then you're going to draft, you know, or I'm going to write these chapters and you're going to write these chapters. Or even um, by POV, like you right. take this POV and I take this POV, right? Yeah. And and it wasn't until actually um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a, an author event with uh, Neil Schusterman and his son, and they were both there with their separate co-authors. So Jared writes with his wife, Sophie, and then Neil writes with Eric Elfman. And both sets of those authors described exactly what Julia and I do. And they were the first time I'd ever met any other authors that do that. And they even talked about the same thing of writing in Google Docs and then both the authors going through the same paragraph at the same time. I am boggled right now. I, I, I would love to watch you do that and see it live because I'm just so fascinated by like, so when I was at university, I studied psychology and I uh, got a scholarship to do a PhD in something called distributed cognition. And so this is essentially a concept of like, is cognition in terms of thought confined by bone and skull and like biological matter or can cognition happen like outside? So when you get somebody who's like, no, let me just draw it out for you to explain. And that's because somebody is having to do almost like the actions and the drawing in order to work out what it is that they're trying to explain to you. And so from like a psychological perspective, I would be absolutely fucking fascinated to watch you two kind of like cognize this story on the page, like all at once. I'm literally like fascinated by this. Um, I, I, I have not even looked at my questions. <laughs> well, our brains are really different. Like between the two of us, I'm probably the one who's dri- like drawn up like fight scenes or like diagrams things because I can't see it until I write it out and or, or sketch it. Um, Ken, I think, is much more like able to visualize it. And then he's almost like channeling what he sees in his brain when he's writing. I'm more iterative. Like I write it out and then I see it and then I like fill it in. So oh, our process so is different. Do you, so you've both written things separately as well. Do you sound different like how do you get that blend of prose does that come through that and we'll talk about the fact that you've got a traditional career so I'm guessing the edits will have blended but do you how do you sound the same 
Um, we are very different as prose writers. Like I think of Ken as having um, more expansive prose and I am more spare in my um, writing style. So I always joke that if a sentence should be about 10 words, Ken will write 15 and I will write five and somehow we will get to 10, right? This is amazing. I love this so much. This is, the, I, I literally, I love this. Okay. What advice do you have for listeners to help them make co-writing easier? Like convince me I have the ability to co-write. I don't know that I do and I would love to try one day. I do think that doing all your ideation, you know, up front, like collaborate, collaborating on building your world and the character arc, like knowing where your finishing point should be, like you're, where you're going to end up is extremely helpful. Um, and one thing that I learned from Jim Butcher, he taught a class at Superstars and he's an incredible instructor, was he talks about, you know, having tags for your characters. And I think if you and your co-author always have that in mind, like where is the finishing point of the character's arc and what are the tags, you will have a more consistent um, product at the end, right? Because it's almost like you're you're both using the same style guide. So just explain what you mean by tag. Um, so Batman, right? Um, when you think about Batman, he's a billionaire. He wears a lot of black. He's an orphan. Okay. You know, like the, this. Identifiers. Whole, yeah. Like when they, well, I think you have a stage background, right? So it's almost like the the music that the intro music that your character has every time they walk on. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about your journey with indie publishing because you have indie books and now you're going trad. So talk about like what didn't work for you, what did work for you and like how you, no, don't talk about how you up the book. Well, I'll ask that one afterwards. Yeah, talk about in, the indie experience first. So we we started, uh, as I said, uh, in like 2017, 2018 and we wrote a, a military sci-fi a uh, series that was two, two and a half books. Um, and then after that, we pivoted to urban fantasy because we were just looking for the next thing to write. And we looked at our shelves and we said, well, there's all this urban fantasy here. <laughs> Maybe we should try writing that. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know that I would say that, uh, that being indie didn't work for us. Uh, I mean, we really like having, having the control over every part of the process. Um, and, uh, we we like being able to put things out when we want to put them out. Um, you know, if we want to put them out faster or slower, then you know we we like having that control. Um, but you know, we we weren't necessarily killing it with any of those books, and uh, we hadn't gotten really up to speed as far as like advertising and things like that. Um, the the story about how we ended up pivoting to trad is is probably the the other question. I don't know if you want to cover that now or yeah yeah go for it. I mean yeah oh, I was okay. like. I'll oh, talk sorry. about that. Th this yeah. is Julia's bit. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I was at a superstars writing seminar, which is in Colorado Springs. Um, and uh, Jonathan Mayberry was um, the host at the dinner table. And he's just, he's so congenial. Right. And he, he's going around the table asking everybody, what are you working on? And when he gets to me, I said, Oh, um, we're working on Asian female John Wick with dragon magic. And he looked at me and he said, are you going to query that? Because you should query that. 
And at that point, we had no um, thoughts about going trad. We were just, we had already commissioned covers from Christian Ventilon. So we had like a trio of covers. We were totally ready to just go indie all the way on this new series that we were super excited about. But I called Ken and I said, well, Jonathan Mayberry said we should try to query. And we knew nothing about querying. We had never done it. We we were not the folks that had been in the query trenches for years and years. Like you hear those um, stories of people really working to um, land their agent. We were uh, like completely ignorant and we had to read a lot of query shark online to figure out how to do it. Actually, Ken did most of that. <laughs> Yeah, so we learned how to write query letters, um, and then we 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 then contacted uh, our um, developmental editor, who had helped us um, polish up our book. Um, Julia didn't mention that when uh, we were talking about now deciding to query it, we were actually probably within two weeks of self-publishing that book. We had everything ready. We had a, a finished manuscript. We were we were ready to hit go on it. We and yeah, then, we had a hundred early readers, so we already yeah. had like um, set hundred eARCs out. Um, the developmental edit was with Joe Nassis, who is who was originally trad and is now indie. Um, so he was um, doing some book coaching at the time, and he had given us our manuscript notes and finally when we said oh we're going to query this um and we think there are six to eight agents that might be able to sell something that has like an asian fantasy element to it uh joe revised our query letter and he's brutal he's like this doesn't make any sense nobody cares about this like you you know you should say this and he, he was great it was really helpful that is absolutely amazing so like what is okay so Oh, I just want to ask all of the questions. Let me slow my brain down. What happened after you started querying? So you were two weeks out from self-publishing and you started querying. Is that right? Yeah. So what we did was, uh, once again, we went back and looked at our bookshelf and we just looked at all the books that we liked, um, that we thought were in about the same genre. And we just looked at who was representing the authors that we're we're passionate about and we ended yeah, up we with read uh, the acknowledgements. You yeah. Know, they thank their agent. And I actually went back through my files last night to double check the number, but we only sent out six queries. Oh, um, everybody's going to hate you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And, and this gets back to what Julia was saying. Like we were absolute noobs at this. We had no idea. I had no frame of reference for like the, the kinds of things that people do to, you know, like to really, spread it wide and just try and hit as wide of a field as possible. I think we were going into the query thinking if this doesn't work, we're always going to fall back on just indie publishing it. That was and, our original plan, yeah. right? So plan A was, Hey, we are going indie on this new project of ours. Um, we have our covers. We, you know, have our um, manuscript completed and Plan B was, oh, maybe we should give six months to this query thing and see if it pans out. And anyone who's been in the query trenches longer knows that we were completely naive to yeah. look at it that way, right? <laughs> People query for years and I had, or go on submission for years and have manuscripts die on submission. But, you know, one thing I tell people is because we were focused on indie publishing it, we did have a very complete package. 
So when we look at like the numbers, our agent told us that she she only has limited reading periods during the year where she's open to um, submissions, right, or queries. And she said she had 864 queries during our reading period. Um, that's where someone sends the letter, the synopsis, and like a chapter. And she requested five full manuscripts. So we were one of the five people who gave her a full manuscript. And then she asked us for a call and we were the only ones that she gave an offer, offer a representation to during that process. So we knew this was uncommon, but only after digging into it when we were in it, because one tribe pub author, Henry Lien, had he, I heard him say something like, you should query eight to 10 agents a week and do this until you hit like 50 to a hundred. Um, so the fact that we maybe queried a total of six to eight agents um, during this process is, uh, in, in hindsight, sort of ridiculous, right? I remember you... Julia telling me about that eight to 10 a week figure, and I about cried. I was <laughs> like, I don't want to do this again, not every week. <laughs> what, what do you think made your query letter and package stand out? Um, so there's this notion of like high concept, right? So I think, um, and high concept means that a higher number of people can understand or relate to this concept. So the Asian female John Wick with Dragon Magic was uh, an easy shorthand, I think, for people. Um, and I know that for comps, you're supposed to really just use novels, but you do see the, that people will use a television series or a movie franchise to convey like the feeling, right? Um, or the energy behind um, a book. And uh we we think part of you know the feedback we got from our agent was that the writing was really solid and she was going to lead with the writing because we were an unknown quantity we were debut authors so what i tell folks who've asked me about this um is that at that point we had probably written six hundred thousand words together so we did have some more words under our belt than some folks when they start querying because what i have seen at least reading like um, other people's query journeys is that it might be their first novel that they've been spending years polishing um, and or maybe their second novel. So um, I do think repetition is helpful that for us having written something like five or 600,000 words together, um, we, had, we had a full package in the sense that we were ready to hit publish and had already gone through a developmental editor that we had paid for. We had a hundred ARC readers we had feedback. Um, I revised this manuscript three times even before we went on sub, right? Yeah, I think that that is why so many indie authors are being picked up at the moment because they have a wealth of experience and therefore it's not just about the fact that like we know how to market, it's that we actually know how to deliver books that get that sell right and and this is a business and some of that a lot of that comes from iteration and just having written enough books seen the results written another book iterated seen the results like and so we go through this process of of iteration and that's really interesting that you know perhaps people are querying too soon even you know they've written one book and want to be traditionally published but actually what author's first book is their best book <laughs> 
in what world right. is that ever the case, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think Joanna Penn a couple of years ago talked about that experience of going back and um, editing and revising very thoroughly her first two or three in her um, largest series, right? And it's because we all understand that after you've written five, six, 10, 50 books, like your first books feel very different, right? A hundred percent. Mine are incredibly different. I made so many mistakes with my, I mean, I love my first series, but like, like you say, it wasn't high concept. I now know how to come up with high concept in order, like it makes marketing easier. Right. And, and like, that's what I did with hearts and highs is like, I started with that kind of tropey high concept like what is this you know everybody says it's like sapphic oceans eight like that kind of that's you know that's the kind of thing that they talk about um anyway this is not about me um right so talk about the so you hook an agent then what happens you know i have friends who said that their agents do um revisions right like a um it varies the level of editing that, um, that the agent might do. Our agent had simply returned the manuscript to us and said, at the end of this chapter, you're missing a beat. So we concluded the scene and she was correct. We were missing a beat at the end of that scene. So we did that. We gave it back to her. And um, I made one more revision to the manuscript that she did not ask for. She just said, I trust you not to break your manuscript. <laughs> It was a lot of pressure. Um, but I had said to her, look, the love interest, I think I'm going to change the feel of this. And so I rewrote like five scenes. And then we went out on submission. And uh, two weeks later, we got a preempt for a six-figure deal for a trilogy from tour. Um, and I think Ken could explain our relationship with our agent was so new. He, She didn't have his phone number. Oh, my God. <gasps> yeah, so I'm just, I'm just at work normal day it's been two weeks so it's kind of like fallen off my radar because i'm at work and i'm in you know work brain and i'm just doing my thing and i get a call from julia because uh Lori was able to get in touch with julia and she's like oh my gosh you have to get on the phone with us right now and that, that was Lori trying to get in touch with us about the preempt and like you know it completely derailed my day but it was great <laughs> Well, this was during lockdown, right? So all of us are kind of thinking that things are going to take forever and ever because it's lockdown and every, and our publisher is in New York. They were so heavily affected at the beginning of COVID, right? So we really had no expectation that we would hear back in any reasonable amount of time, right? Just, just circling back in case because obviously uh, listeners are predominantly indie focused what is a preempt uh, a preempt is um the publisher saying we're going to pay you to take this manuscript off the open market so we don't want you to have an auction right because normally i feel like they're like it's almost like realtors right if they have an offer in hand they go back to another interested party and say i have an offer from party a i think in a couple days we're going to have, you know, we're going to take offers from everybody. So it's to get everyone on the same page and sort of bid against each other in this marketplace, right, of for manuscripts. And um, a preempt is saying, hey, you have 24 or 48 hours to make a decision and then take this off the market and nobody else gets it. Amazing. Cool. No pressure then. No pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I, I guess I should explain before going out on submission, um, Lori gave us a spreadsheet and said, these are the editors that we are going to contact and send this package to. So we had a thorough discussion of each editor. And I was following some of these editors on Twitter to see what their aesthetic was and the kinds of things they got excited by. And at one point I had said, no, I think this editor would not find our manuscript like to their taste, right? And so we changed our approach. And I think that helped us um, because it is very subjective, right? You're, you're, you're selling, you're trying to sell to one acquisitions editor and they like what they like, right? And it, it's not a, um, about the quality of your manuscript. It's just about the feelings they have when they read it. That's why they have their manuscript wish lists and that kind of thing to which Ken and I had no nothing about, right? We didn't, we didn't actually pay attention to those things when we were um, in the query process. I just love this story so much. <laughs> just, just shows like how many ways in there really, really are. Um, Okay, like you know, like I say, I mostly talk about indie paths on this podcast. What do you think are the most significant differences that you've experienced going through this new traditional publishing pathway? Like, what have you enjoyed? What has been uh, maybe less enjoyable? <coughs> cough, cough. It would be the lack of control for me. Um, no. uh, yeah. What? Tell, talk to me about the differences and your experiences. Um, I think uh, as far as producing the book, um, the the process is very meticulous. Um, and I, I think it, that, that in particular appeals to me. Um, I, I like this process of like going over the book with a fine tooth comb and, and really getting into the nitty gritty. Um, I, in particular, the, the last set of copy edits on Ebony Gate. Um, I, I don't even know if we got formally introduced to the person who did our edits, but the, the edit file we got back was simply amazing. It was like, you know, a highlight here and it says, oh, here you say it's sunny, but three pages earlier, you said it's partly cloudy, you know, or this is 10, this says 10 a.m. Um, is this really enough reasonable time since she woke up in the morning to do all of this and for it still to be 10 a.m.? Uh, so a lot of really uh, just detail-oriented things like that that really appeal to me. Um, I know a, a lot of that will go over We'll, we'll just bypass a lot of readers, uh, especially people who read really fast, uh, like me. <laughs> um, but I, I really appreciate that attention to detail. Um, and they, they, they apply that same attention to detail to the, the physical book itself, which is something that I don't think was on Julia and I's radar when we were initially planning on indie publishing this. And there's a lot of really cool things that they brought to the publication of the book that, um, like I said, they weren't, I don't even know if they weren't on our radar. I don't think we even knew they existed, you know, uh, the kinds of things that, that they want to do, like um, the chapter ornaments and the embossing and all the stuff that you look at, you're like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I, I, yes. They, they would ask us, but you know, do you want to do this? Yes, please sign us up. <laughs> that's so cool. What are kind of the biggest craft lessons? So you've mentioned like attention to detail. Are there any other kind of craft things that you picked up from your editors? Yes. So working yeah. with Claire, Claire Eddy was incredible because she she doesn't give like a prescriptive thing, like fix it this way. She just says, how does she feel here? 
or is this exactly what would happen? Or, you know, she just asked a question and that forced us to really explore the interiority of the protagonist uh, much more. It actually did change the tone of the book. So there was nothing in there where she was forcing her opinions or her views, her editorials um, kind of approach onto us. It was that we hadn't looked at the protagonist that way and it gave us more. So I think it was a much richer experience after doing the revisions to the editorial letter that she gave us. So having the opportunity to work with an editor like her was really fantastic. And, um, and, you know, Ken had said earlier, like he's very plotty. I'm also very structure based, right? We, we never, we try really hard to make sure there's not a plot, a plot hole. Like I am very technical as to the way a scene turning, um, the turning points in a scene, the story beats, like I like all the sort of scaffolding in the story spine. So having an editor like Claire, who is much more interested in the feelings of the protagonist was helpful to us. And I think um, informed our writing, change the tone of the manuscript. So the highs went higher and the lows went lower. So there was more stretch, right? In the range, the emotional range of the protagonist after working with Claire and, um, one thing that I think is helpful is, you know, coming from Indie, we always think about our book as a product and in publishing, they 100% think about the book as a product, right? So uh, that made it easier for us to have neutrality as to feedback that we were getting from editors um, during that process. Like one question she asked our agent was, how are Julia and Ken about feedback? Right. So I didn't know this, but apparently when they acquire a manuscript, um, they understand that um, some creatives might push back really hard on any kind of editorial change. Um, we are not like that. We we were in the business sector for decades and we're just trying to deliver a good experience for the reader. So if we think if they think this will make it better and we agree, we're all in right on um, making those revisions. So. Uh, the editorial component of of being an indie, thinking about the book as a product and working with a publisher who thinks about the end game was helpful. Um, as far as differences, you know, we had to sign this like 40 page contract and publishing, traditional publishing is very slow and COVID also delayed the timeline like another year. So we got the preemptive February of 2020 this book is coming out in July of 2023. So just think about how long that life um, line is for this book, right? Have you and written all three now? We finished book two before they even sent us the manuscript. I mean, the contract for the <laughs> manuscripts. Yeah. So we had already written book two and actually we're in revisions for it right now. So it's been two years since we looked at the manuscript for book two. Um, I know we wrote three more indie books in the meantime. So because <laughs> we wrote our Seattle Slayer series and, you know, so we already had like another 300,000, 500,000 words under our belt or something by the time, um, you know, this book is coming out. So you're not under a non-compete then you, you, or are you, but it's okay in a different genre or different series or... Oh, there's absolutely a non-compete and it's very draconian and it actually um, probably took six weeks to ha have a back and forth with um, the publisher and 
I found the whole experience as an attorney to be ex- extremely confusing because you're not really dealing with legal on the other side, right? In a publisher, like they have a contracts department um, and your editor is in that awkward position of, you know, kind of, it's not adversarial, but they can't say yes to everything. So I just said to them, look, I would like some transparency on this non-compete. Here's an exhibit that I want to attach that these are my independent projects that we are working on. And I want you to exclude them or say that you think they're competing. So we know now up front. I don't want this to be a mystery, right? And I, I had this email back from contracts that said, oh, we've never had to enforce this, which I found to be an um, unusual sentiment. Maybe that's completely true that it's rarely enforced. I think it's more necessary for say um, an autobiography, right? Where it's really a competitive product. If you like, if you're you know, the former senator of whatever, and you sell your your biography to publisher A, you don't want to walk down the street and sell your bio, your autobiography to publisher B, it's directly competing. But I feel like we know reader behavior and readers like to read your whole backlist if they love you. So it's not competing to write another book. I just, it, I don't think it cannibalizes sales at all. So I, I feel like this provision, the non-compete is is not well thought out in a fiction contract. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah, exactly. And if you're under the same pen name as well, like then there's even more crossover. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and so um, I I found that process to be a very bizarre one in, nav- in navigating the um, non-compete. But I also think it's one of the most important provisions in the contract because you cannot let somebody else control your livelihood. Right. And um, yeah. And so your agency will have some sort of pre-negotiated language that sometimes they're able to get in there again with certain publishers, but not always. And at the end of this process, after Ken and I were comfortable that they excluded the series that we were working on, which is Seattle Slayers, um, it said in bold and capital letters at the end, not a precedent which is their way of telling our agency that, by the way, your other clients aren't getting this. Wow. Yeah, it's very different, right? So coming from the um, indie mindset of, you know, where you have kind of full authorial control and, and you, know, you now you're licensing your rights to this publisher. They're asking for, in our case, World English. They're also trying to put a non-compete in there and they have an option on a later work. So um, watching how all those pieces fit together, it can be very restrictive in the way that it feels coming from indie to saying, okay, you have a lot of rules and guardrails here. So can we talk about it? Right. um, I I don't know how other authors approach that. Certainly your agent, your literary agent, um, their expertise is incredibly helpful there. But I think if I were not an attorney, I probably would have engaged um, counsel to help me with that contract. I find this so interesting because um, I can't say too much yet, but there are offers coming in for certain projects that I've done. And um, it's been very interesting to see how you can exercise sub rights. Um, And the things that the that my agent is working on, like comments that I'm seeing about certain clauses and things has been really quite interesting because you just don't 
think about it. Like you are in control of absolutely everything. And when you are selling a right, that right is then a business opportunity that must be profitable for the person who's buying it. So it is like a really, it's a really interesting lesson in business and that kind of like what that that is my next next question this is a great segue but like what have you learned about the business of writing um from this experience of working with um traditional like and the traditional pathway that maybe you didn't know as an indie or maybe you did but it's been reinforced i don't i don't mind i think um julie and i were just talking about this yesterday's um about the about the lead up right to to launch and what the kinds of things that trad does to put things into place on the way up to the launch of the book and how, you know, a lot of those things are, you know, it's, it's not hard for indies to do, but maybe it's not necessarily, um, on our radar. Uh, we, we get the book done and you, you, you package it all up and you get the cover on it and it's like, wow, this is great. Let's just, let's get it out there. You know, it's, I, I spent so long writing it. I, now I need to put it up there, start running some ads to it, start, you know, get it to start making some money. But instead, you know, that ostensibly the publishers had our book in a relatively finished state for a few months now, but we're still kind of in this long lead up and there's this, you know, this effort to, do NetGalley uh, campaigns and reach out to influencers and things like that, and just try and build up as much hype about it as possible, so that when it does land in the stores, you know it, it makes as big a splash as possible. Uh, and I, I think that's Julie and I were just talking yesterday about how we're gonna we're gonna try and adapt some of those things to what we do on the indie side to try and and mimic some of that. We know we can't do all of it because we're not a big fish like Tor, but we can we can do the things that we can do. You know, if, if, if that means printing out a bunch of e-arcs or uh, printing out a bunch of uh, paper arcs and, you know, packaging them up really nicely and sending them out, that's, you know, that's not outside the realms of reason. Yeah. I mean, I listened to your episode about how you built up launch for your pen name. And I do think that romance authors are definitely on the forefront of doing all those things. I know I've seen Carissa Broadbent really focus on beautiful books, right? Just these gorgeous hardcovers that she sends to influencers. And I do feel like it is within the, um, the ability of indies to do this long lead up, right? But I think it also comes back to what type of author you are. If you are hey, I like to write a book a month and, you know, feed my hungry readership and just get it out there. That's fine, right? But if you are maybe writing two to four novels a year and you have some bandwidth to reach out to influencers, set up a NetGalley campaign, talk to librarians, there's a lot of PR that happens on the TradHub side that I don't know that I really understood um, until now. And I, I know that you said that your print sales were really unusually high for an indie. And I think that's because you were mimicking those trad pub engines that we see right now. Yeah, I think this is so interesting because I'm I'm almost shifting from two to four a year into the more frequent amount of books but that that is also because my processes have changed and I've naturally sped up rather than wanting to mimic a rapid release because I don't really like rapid release because I don't 
I don't really like launching if I'm honest. I just want to sit in my office and write all day. Um, but you know, we have to we have to launch the things that we write. Um, so I'm stuck in 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 this place of almost cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, I'm physically writing faster and could probably, I think next year, potentially, potentially, theoretically, I I could write a book a month at the pace that I'm that I write. But I can't do that because there's so much that comes with um, launching. So like I'm in this space where in my head, I want to act more like a traditional publisher and do a short print run and box things out and send them out. But actually the pace at which I write isn't conducive to that. So I'm having to now reassess what I can systematize in the back in order to make the pressure of a launch less. Um, But then also look at, well, maybe I do two to four big launches a year and then some lesser launches and those books just become like immediate backlist almost just because otherwise I'm like in this constant state of like push pull because you there is only so much time. And if you do write faster, you literally cannot run that many massive launches a year because there's unless you've got staff. Well, and that hybrid model, right? Because you see a lot of authors who are like that, like LJ Shen and I think Megan Quinn, and they are prolific, but they don't want to have so many launches. So then they also work with 47 North or Lake Union or whatever Amazon's arm is so that I think they're offloading some of that launch energy, right? And then they have that hybrid, right? Where this this is through a publisher and this is me because I'm one person and maybe I have me plus a VA or, or more staff. But I agree with you that um, it, it's hard to have that many launches in a year, right? There's a reason that TradPub can only launch a book a year. The fastest they told us they could get a um, book, I guess, um, consecutively published was nine months. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's tough um, for them because they do have this, this, um, meticulous process and that I mean I had never focused on librarians before and then when we had our marketing meeting it was incredible the amount of people that came on to this zoom call right so we had our editor and the assistant editor the marketing uh, manager the marketing director the publicist and the senior publicist and they all have these special roles like Ken and I often don't know who to contact for what thing because there, there's so many of them, but um, we also don't fully understand the difference between duties that are PR duties versus duty, duties that are marketing duties. But, you know, the marketing team was saying, okay, we make the influencer boxes, we're getting the licenses from your artists for the prints and the things that um, the, the book plates that you've commissioned. And then the PR person was like, okay, and we're getting you to the book festival in San Diego, and we're getting you in front of the independent bookseller forum at their spring, you know, um, roundup. And there were just a lot of things that I think as an indie, I hadn't thought about before. Um, The NetGalley is something available to indies, right? It is. you You can put your book up and do that too. It is very expensive though. I don't know if you've looked at the prices, but they're not, uh, they're not cheap. <laughs> yeah. You know, the things that a, um, a traditional publisher can pay for, they, they have this thing called shelf awareness, right. And ad in shelf awareness is something like $2,500. Wow. Yeah. It's to get like that column, that bar on the side of their newsletter, but 
their mailing list is something like 450,000 subscribers. I, I think this is this is one of the benefits of having got a larger trad deal because I know when you get a smaller trad deal often the marketing budget doesn't come along with it but I suppose because you've secured like a larger deal they then have to recoup the investment and so the marketing budgets come in because I know yeah I, I like I know authors who've had sort of smaller budgets and they're not really had even a marketing plan given to them so um I think I, I, I these lessons are so critical and I really like that you mentioned Carissa as well because I've actually been watching Carissa and watching everything play out I'm pretty sure we share an agent actually but anyway um I've been watching like all of the things that come out and just it's fucking everywhere it's everywhere on every TikTok on every fucking bookstagram it's incredible to see it like play out yeah Um, and I do feel like romance indies are just so good at it like I went to Barnes and Noble this weekend and they have a romance book club it's mostly dominated by indie authors and so they have all the print from these indie authors for their romance on a table for their book club, which I think is pretty brilliant. Yeah. That is amazing. Okay. You pitched Ebony Gate as Asian female John Wick with Dragon Magic. How did you blend your own culture experiences into the world building while also keeping to like urban fantasy genre expectations? Like what are your world building tips here? I think when we first started writing this, uh, we we knew we wanted to do urban fantasy but we i think julia and i were we were just tired of seeing everything being vampires and fae and werewolves right and and we wanted to use this opportunity to try and bring the kind of stuff that our parents knew and and taught to us when we were kids and put that into the into the manuscript and we we really like the idea of these asian dragons which are really different from from Western dragons. And so we said, well, what if, what if we have people that are, that are sort of like descended from the dragons, right? And then how does that all play out? And our world building is, is we're very practical people, Julia and I, and everything has to make sense for us. And like she said, we, 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 we do a lot of work to make sure that we don't have plot holes, no obvious errors. You know, like we don't have things where like, well, if they'd only just made a phone call, we, we hate those kinds of errors in books. Uh, so we really wanted things to make a lot of sense. And I think even when you're doing something as far off the wall as another type of human being that are descended from Chinese dragons, as long as you ground it in some really sensible real world rules, um, you can make it all really seamless and make it all make sense. I think in urban fantasy, you have to decide up front, like, does your world have the veil, right? Meaning, are there people in the know and then people who don't know, right? And so we decided, all right, you're in San Francisco. It's a city we love. I I grew up in San Francisco. It always felt very magical to me as a kid. And so having um, a secret city within the city was what the angle I was going for to make it feel like, hey, you know, you think you know Chinatown, but if you just turn down this alley like that no one can see, now you're in this other world where um, the rules are different, right? Um, and we're very rule-driven people. I know you have these rebel questions, but like Ken and I are very much rule followers. Like I am a lawyer, literally that's all I do all day is like assess rules. And 
we wanted our magic to have rules. So I guess like on the Sanderson scale, it was not a, not as much of a soft magic. There were a little bit more, there was a little more structure to the way we were thinking about the, the magic system for this world. And, and I know that um, when, when we invoke John Wick, um, you know, obviously everybody thinks of Keanu and, you know, there, there's that, that parallel between what he does and what Emiko does in the book, but in a, in a very, in my most recent rewatching of John Wick one, and I was doing this with my parents who are in their seventies. And I was trying to explain all of this to them as we're watching a very fast paced action movie. And my mom's trying to keep up with the subtitles as we're watching. And I'm trying to explain it to her in the, in the half second of a breath that you get between action scenes. Right. <laughs> and, and I realized that for, for all of like the imagery of John Wick as a person and as a character, I think the thing that we really brought to the book from John Wick that I identify most with is this idea that, like Julia said, like you turn this corner and if you go through this door instead of that door, all of a sudden things are really different. And especially in John Wick, and we did this in Ebony Gate too, this idea that there's this whole other set of people that are living right alongside you, right? But they've got a wholly different set of rules that they live by, a whole different set of societal norms. And they don't really give an F about what you think is normal. They're going to live by their rules. And once you fall into that, then it's like, you know, game over. You got you to gotta play by their rules. And that's, I think that's what we like. Uh, that's what the, ultimately the, the core thing that we took out of John Wick and, and adapted for Ebony Gate. And it's the, the Emiko's family, right? The Jaren, like these people have their own set of rules and laws that they live by. And that, that tension of, of Emiko trying to find her way in between both of those worlds. I love John Wick. I think it is quite possibly one of my favorite franchises ever. Mm. So uh, yeah, I, I just I just love this entirely and fully. I think my favorite thing about John Wick is kind of what you're saying about turning down a, a down like a, just one different road and everything's so different. It's it gives me it gives my inner child hope that magic is actually real. That's like that's what I love about John Wick. And and it's like, oh, if if I just if I just, you know, like go through this door or go and and the fact that it's so close to reality and and yet you have like like the gold coins. I love that they mm -hmm. pay with gold coins. It's like those tiny little details, they're the things that I love about John Wick. Um, other than the atmosphere and and mostly just Keanu as well. But anyway, um okay. Is John Wick urban fantasy? I I think it is. I, I think I it think is, so. right? I think, I think it feels so. like it to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, except, yeah. yeah, it's just that there's no elemental magic or, you know, fancy spells. But what they do almost feels like magic, right? Their utter competency with weapons, like their hyper competency with weapons, mm -hmm. right? That that fine line between contemporary and magic and like a paper thin line is like the ultimate catnip for me mm. like that like that is in fact funny enough my coach has suggested that that's where I should be writing but I'm I think I'm a little bit chicken shit <laughs> so 
<laughs> like I always end up veering a little bit too much into the magic, but like I would love to be able to. Anyway, this is not this is not relevant. Right. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. Uh, tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel and no cheating. I do want one from you both. <laughs> uh, well, if we're going to start with me, um, I oh, man, I agonized over this question. I, I think I think like Julia said, we're we're both rule followers. So the, the, the time I really did something that was really outside my comfort zone, what literally was becoming a full-time author, which is, uh, I, I quit my job in March of this year. Uh, I'd been there. I'd been in that industry for, like I said, like 20, 25 years, um, scary as hell. Um, but, uh, it's a lot more relaxing now. So, and, you know, I get to devote my time to all of this. That's, that's what I think is in in all of my memory that I can recall is the the time that I've done something that's been so far outside my 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 idea of living within the rules. Yeah, and they sold their house in California. They moved to Washington. They you know they changed their sort of budget. Like they did a lot so that Ken could do this. That's um, amazing. For me, I had said to Ken yesterday, I never break the rules. Right. Like I am not a rebel. Like I am absolutely a rule follower. And then I realized, no, that's not true. I will always break the rules for my kids. So I homeschooled both the kids at various times in their life. And I took so much flack from both my in-laws and my parents. Um, and to some degree society, like they look at you a little bit like, oh, your kids are homeschooled. Like, you know, there's, there were good reasons for us to do it. And our kids were happy that we did it. And I felt like that was one of the rare circumstances in my life where I would say that um, I felt nonconformist, right? I've said to both the kids, you don't have to go to college. Your path to success doesn't look, it doesn't have to look like mine or your dad's, right? Um, I want them to find their own passions. So that is probably more about me feeling like that's how I nurture them is to tell them they can break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I love that. And there is no better reason to break the rules than for, for the people that you love. So I think that is absolutely amazing. I have absolutely loved this interview. Thank you both so much for coming on. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, you can find everything about our books at phoenixhoard.com. Uh, Phoenix is P-H-O-E-N-I-X-H-O-A-R-D.com. And we just put that website up and it has uh, all the pertinent information about Ebony Gate and then also links to our independent series, Seattle Slayers, which has three books out now. And fourth book, the final book in the first arc is coming out in November of this year. Amazing. And I don't yeah, have and it has links. Okay, um, I'll send it to you. And we have all the links um, from that site to our respective websites and our social media. Um, I am on Twitter and recently TikTok, as I'm learning from people like you, Sasha. <laughs> and she's killing it. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. 
I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Julia V and Ken B. Bell, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Join me next week when we will be talking to Joe Solari, and we'll be talking all about the author marketing audit. It, it was a very information-dense episode. I really enjoyed talking to Joe. I thought he was fascinating, and I believe he's going to be um, at 20 Books of Vegas in November as well. So next week will be the last episode before I go on holiday. So it'll be the last one with the intro. Then we'll have the um, celebration episode uh, of 200 uh, episodes of the podcast. And then there'll be one more where I won't do an intro and then I'll be back to normal. So yeah, enjoy that next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.